Hi, I'm Jayan Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. All through the 40-day lockdown period and even prior on this podcast, we try to bring you a range of expert opinions on every aspect related to COVID-19. Today's episode is one of the most important in that series. The possibility of a graded exit from the 40-day lockdown is fast approaching. All indications from the government now are that substantial relaxations will come into effect in several districts. And there is a confidence that the lockdown has helped India slow the spread of the infection. But how long do we still need to be on guard against COVID-19? How do we negotiate a new normal in terms of what we can or cannot do? And most importantly, has the lockdown period allowed us to adequately scale up and organize our public health systems in case there is a surge of cases down the line? I'm in conversation today with Dr. K. Srinath Reddy, President of the Public Health Foundation of India and a member of the ICMR's Task Force on COVID-19. Dr. Reddy is one of India's most eminent doctors and experts on public health, having advised central and state governments and having served on numerous international advisory bodies. To assess the gains made during the lockdown period and to help us chart a way forward, we are happy to welcome him to the podcast today. Dr. Srinath Reddy, thank you so much for joining us on the Hindus in Focus podcast and for making time for us today. Well, it's a Uh, pleasure to be with you. Doctor, as we are nearing the end of the 40-day lockdown, uh, it's time to review, I think, one of the key objectives of the lockdown policy. Um, You know, whether the lockdown gave us a window of time to organize and scale up our public health systems in case there is a surge of cases going forward. Now, do you think that this has been achieved? And uh, what are the areas in which we can measure this? Perhaps we can take the first part of that question first. Do you think it's been achieved? I do not think we can say it has been achieved, but we can certainly say it has improved. Our public health system has been quite weak for several decades because of poor investments, not only in infrastructure, but also in the health workforce and in a number of other areas like, for example, the non-availability of public health cadres, the non-availability of adequate regulatory structures, and of course, very low levels of health financing, which were barriers to access and affordability of health care. Obviously, we cannot say that we have actually accomplished a transformation in each of these areas whether it is from the point of view of a steady state functioning of the health system or the surge response that is required to meet a pandemic challenge like this. However, I believe the lockdown has given us an opportunity to try and ramp up our resources in each of our areas, particularly in terms of building up more hospital bed capacity for isolation and intensive care, also for ensuring that our testing capacity has improved with acquisition of more testing kits, pressing into service of a large number of healthcare workers for contact tracing and isolation, as well as bringing in more doctors and nurses, including auxiliaries, 
from the retirees and so on for providing healthcare services if required. We have also seen that the manufacturing capacity of medical equipment as well as personal protection equipment has gone up quite substantially. Therefore, it has given us time to prepare and respond better to the challenge of a surge as it happens. We should hope that the measures taken so far on the public health side will prevent the need for a surge in the hospital care side. Nevertheless, I believe overall we are better prepared now than we were before the start of the lockdown. Okay. In 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 kind of assessing the benefits of the lockdown, sir, would you say that this has perhaps been the the biggest thing that we can point to, um, or could would you also say that it's helped substantially in slowing down the infection rate? Well, I think it has uh, slowed down the infection as well, though it's very difficult to always say on the basis of merely the so-called doubling time, which is often talked about, because the doubling time has to be standardized for the number of tests performed, because the more the tests performed, obviously the more the cases detected. But even more importantly, to see whether the eligibility criteria for testing have remained standardized over time between two periods of comparison. If you have actually relaxed your criteria or expanded your criteria, then obviously you're going to see more cases. So while adjusting for all of these, The testing numbers give you some information which does suggest that even with increased number of tests and more relaxed or expanded eligibility criteria for testing, we are seeing the doubling time actually increasing quite substantially now to almost 10 days or beyond. But that's not the only source of information, incomplete as it is. We also have to look at whether the hospital admissions for serious acute respiratory infection are increasing or not, and particularly if there is a surge as as was anticipated or apprehended. That is not happening across the country. But in between these two, we also have other sources of information, which is influenza-like illness, where syndromic surveillance is done in order to find out what are the numbers of influenza-like illnesses that are happening across the country, both through the Integrated Disease Surveillance Program as well as other reports through household surveillance through contact programs. Now, only a small proportion of the influenza-like illnesses would be because of COVID-19 infection. But if those numbers are also not rising and the hospital cases are not rising and the doubling time of the tested cases found positive is now expanding and becoming longer, then we have a three-dimensional picture of the infection to say that, yes, we are gaining control over the infection. At least we are disrupting substantially its transmission chain so as to slow it down. So, sir, the great unknown at the moment, and, you know, throughout this period, the constant dilemma has been lockdown versus economy. And I think that question is going to take on even more complicated nuances now or dimensions if we do have some kind of a lifting of the lockdown. And I was wondering, do you have any immediate prescriptions on how to chart a way forward? And what are the activities that you feel can be avoided? And how long can we expect to see this kind of new normal last for? 
Well, I believe that it is time for us to now start moving out of the lockdown. Right. For most of the country, where we do not have clearly identified hot zones with high case load. It is in those zones that we probably will have to continue, if not the full rigorous form of the lockdown, at least the slightly uh, loosened form of lockdown, uh, which we have actually been following in the second phase of the lockdown. But beyond that, we ought to take a district by district assessment and then look at the activities that can be restored. There are several parts of the country where we have not seen the virus now rearing its head and spreading very fast. In fact, Bihar, UP, Northeast, and several districts in the country, even in other states, are not showing many cases now. And of course, cases which had uh, come up in Kerala also have reduced in number, and other southern states are also showing improvement. So we are ought to do a district by district assessment and restart activities there where it is feasible to do so. But in every district, particularly in the districts where we are resuming economic activities, I believe we ought to look at urban and rural areas slightly differently. Rural areas are likely to be highly protected at the moment. As we restart our economic activities, rural areas should gear up first, and it's already happening in terms of harvesting and other field work. Even as urban areas resume in these districts, we must try and restrict the travel and transportation of goods between urban and rural areas to absolutely essential goods and essential travel needs. Because we should prevent the ingress of the virus from urban areas to rural areas which are currently better protected. So I believe our economic activities would have to focus first on farming, as well as some essential production activities in the industry for essential goods. And then as we are moving towards the social side, obviously we have to avoid mass meetings, we have to avoid malls and cinema halls, but smaller group meetings should be possible, office work should be possible, for essential needs again, prioritizing work from home wherever possible, restricting non-essential travel. And these are the kind of elements that will have to be gradually restored as we move along to a much better levels of infection control. Social distancing in public would still have to be maintained. And because we also are not sure what's going to happen in the winter, whether there's going to be a resurgence ahead of winter or even in winter. So we have to continue to be on our guard, but economic activities in essential sectors should resume. Even on the social side, as I said, obviously large gatherings are to be completely avoided. And in education, I would give preference to school education over college education immediately, because school education is something that has to be done through personal contact. College education can come in a little later because college education can also be done through distance education. So, and children anyway are less likely to get affected by the COVID virus. Also, we bring in the younger elements of our health, of our workforce, not only the health workforce, but other workforce into play earlier on because even if they're infected, they actually cope with it much better with less serious consequences. We protect the older segments of our population from that kind of exposure. 
and even the middle-aged segments who are somewhere in the intermediate risk zone can actually have supervisory responsibilities without coming into direct contact with patients in the hospitals or even in offices having supervisory responsibility without necessarily mingling with the larger groups. So we ought to have a differentiated approach, but our return to economic activity is necessary, but it has to be in a way that we can actually manage to keep the infection also under control and therefore a fairly segmented, diversified approach is needed. Okay, and how long do you think we should avoid taking flights and things like that, sir? Well, some essential uh, flights would have to be restarted, but now we have discovered to our great surprise and I think reassurance and comfort that right. a lot of the flights that were taken for official purposes uh, were uh, not really required and a lot of that work could be done even from distance communication. Uh, certainly, uh, travel, uh, travel for tourism and other personal purposes other than personal emergencies or major events uh, should also be avoided. So I believe while some flights may have to be restored, uh, and particularly if it is to uh, relatively safer areas from relatively safe areas, then that should be possible. But again, screening should be done before entry into the airports and before boarding the flight, uh, more than uh, the security measures that are there uh, for uh, looking at uh, terrorism purposes. We also ought to be looking at uh, whether people are uh, febrile or not, and whether they're having any other symptoms suggestive of an active infection. Uh, but certainly travel should be restricted, whether by flights or even by train, uh, for essential needs and uh, not for leisure. Um, you mentioned, sir, that there was a concern um, in the winter that we could see some kind of resurgence, um, what might even be called a second wave. Um, so given all that, what do you think, sir, is the, is the kind of time period which we're talking about in which we're going to be seeing the, the effects of the virus, not just in our health system, but in the way our economic activity is also affected? We do not know much about how this virus is going to behave because it's a new virus. There is anticipation that we will see a slowdown in summer as the temperatures rise and even when the humidity rises. But there is also an apprehension that it could actually rear its head again in winter. We have to see whether it behaves like other coronaviruses, which do have a seasonal pattern, or whether this is an atypical virus, which behaves with virulence unabated throughout the year. Right. If we anticipate that this actually is going to have a temperature effect and will go into a bit of a slumber during the period between peak summer and onset of winter, then we still have to be prepared for a possible resurgence in winter and we cannot let down our guard till April or May next year. Therefore, we have to watch how the situation evolves and respond to that rather than make hasty predictions at this point in time. But in the interest of safety, we have to plan as though this is going to be a phenomenon that we have to deal with for over a year or till a universal vaccine is available, which can be quickly administered to everybody. Right. 
And uh, just a couple of purely public health uh, questions to round off, sir. Uh, the first is, uh, what are the public health lessons that we can learn from other countries? And particularly, there's been a lot of attention given to several Asian countries that have been sort of held up as exemplars. South Korea, of course, being one. Um, we have heard more recently that countries like Malaysia are doing better in terms of keeping the virus in check. Are there any lessons that we can learn here? Well, actually, well, actually, the champion in this region has been Vietnam. Right. Okay. Uh, Vietnam is the sort of unreported, unsung hero, but the WHO has recognized it as the best case example. Uh, of course, Singapore is having some problems in terms of resurgence among the migrant workers, which again shows that we ought to be very careful about dealing with the population as a whole, and we can't segment the population into citizens and non-citizens, or the rich and the poor, when we're dealing with a highly infectious disease or a pandemic. There are what are called negative externalities. I may not have the infection, but if somebody else has an infection which I ignore, then that infection can spread to me. So I think Singapore has been a good example, particularly in healthcare and fair amount in public health, but this has been one bit of a lapse. But what we have seen in general in Southeast Asian countries is that because they have had the experience of the H1N1 and the H5N1, uh, the so-called uh, swine flu as well as the avian influenza, as well as the SARS, they have actually prepared their public health as well as healthcare systems very well to respond very quickly to any such threat. They're already ready to get into high gear very quickly. So I think the Southeast Asian countries have been particularly well performing because of that reason. Same thing with Hong Kong and Taiwan and so on and so forth, uh, which have actually claimed a similar experiences. But uh, we uh, have had other things that have been favoring us. But I believe that from the point of view of uh, investments in public health, it is absolutely important that we build up a very strong surveillance system, a very strong primary healthcare system, and we also ensure that investments overall in our entire health system, including the health workforce as well as advanced care, are also there uh, so that we do not have weak uh, chinks in our armor. Okay. And um, lastly, sir, just an area that I think we haven't covered here at the Hindu and I haven't really seen covered anywhere else. What is happening to our public health that is, you know, non-COVID diseases and issues? You know, at some point, let, let me frame this by asking you, you know, what you are most concerned about. You know, somebody like you who knows India's public health system very well. If an event came along like COVID-19 that kind of sucked away all resources, which are the areas that you would be most concerned about? not getting resources? Well, we have had the sustainable development goals and various targets that were fixed to various health conditions under goal three. Now, obviously, all of those targets are important. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there from the public health point of view. But from the point of view of immediate attention and from the point of view of equity in particular, I would look at maternal and child health as very, very important issues. Okay. We cannot afford to slip back upon the attention that we are giving to antenatal checkups, care of pregnant women, safe deliveries, and ensuring that the children are not only born in safe conditions,
but that immunization is also provided, that nutrition is provided. So I believe that these routine public health functions, which are particularly important in our context, should not be ignored. As far as elements like blood pressure, diabetes, and other chronic conditions are concerned, they also demand attention, but they possibly can be attended to even by telemedicine or by uh, way of, uh, um, in a sense, even the slight deferment uh, should not be a problem uh, in terms of actual consultations. But when it comes to things like emergency surgeries or uh, trauma, uh, snake bites, these are not the kind of things that can be ignored. Therefore, the health system has to function uh, towards other emergencies as well as some important prioritized healthcare functions like uh, maternal and uh, child health. At the same time, mental health is an area that is going to suffer a fair amount because of the lockdown, confinement at home, anxiety, high levels in the general public, and certainly people who already are predisposed to that will have a problem. Uh, there could be issues of domestic violence. These are all challenges that will come in. So mental health is an area that I believe also ought not to be neglected at the same time. It requires a fair amount of attention. Uh, so as I said, women and child health, emergency so of any kind, medical or surgical, including emergency surgeries, as well as mental health issues. I think these are important elements. Okay. Um, and about, about things like tuberculosis and malaria that are like more long-standing concerns? Oh, yes. Uh, uh, true. I mean, obviously, uh, tuberculosis is an important program that should not be neglected. We have already declared that we'll get rid of tuberculosis by 2025. That clock is going to get reset. But in the case of tuberculosis, etc., we also recognize that we will have an opportunity to provide medicines on a long term. So instead of giving medicines for one month, you might as well give medicines for two months or three months. So the medication should not be interrupted. Uh, clinical assessment may not necessarily be done uh, with predetermined periodicity. Uh, it can be done as needed. But certainly from the point of view of medication of already diagnosed cases, we should not neglect it. And investigation of suspected cases, that should not be neglected. Similarly, anti-malaria medication, which is given particularly in primary health care. So that should continue. So our primary health care function should not be really affected too much. It is only in the hospitals that is where you are looking at reserving some additional facilities for isolation or for intensive care. So that is where a certain degree of triage is necessary. But primary health care functions should be resumed and should be as complete as possible. Right, sir, we'll end the interview there. Thank you for giving us uh, so much of your time today. It was a pleasure talking to you. 